The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. What we know about Clark in general, if you take a step back, is that plan to send a letter to state officials in Georgia, falsely saying that the Justice Department had evidence that was concerning, and it felt that the state would need to basically take another look at its electors. We know that that was not only untrue, we know that Jeff Clark knew that that was untrue. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 24th, 2022. It was day five of the House Select Committee hearings on January 6th. This time, the committee was focused on the president's efforts to pressure and one may even say decapitate the Justice Department to get it to put pressure on states on voter fraud matters and overturn the results of the 2020 election. In front of the committee were senior Justice Department officials who threatened to resign if an obscure environmental lawyer was made acting attorney general. It was another dramatic day of testimony, and joining us in Twitter spaces to debrief on it and chew it all over in front of a live audience were Lawfare senior editors Quinta Jurassic and Roger Parloff, and the New York Times' Katie Benner, who broke the whole story of the coup attempt at the Justice Department shortly after it happened. We talked about whether we learned anything new. We talked about how the department officials came off. Are they heroes or are they apparatchiks? And we talked about how all of it fits into the committee's larger story. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 24th, the January 6th committee hearings, day five. Quinta, get us started here. Uh, I'm going to start with the same question I did last time. Uh, what is the story the committee is telling this time, and how does it relate to January 6th and to the larger story that the committee is trying to tell? The story that we're focused on today uh, is a story that we were supposed to hear last week, but it was delayed. Um, this is the tale of what happened at the Justice Department in uh, December, mostly late December and very early January, before January 6th, uh, when essentially what Trump is attempting to do was, as you said, Ben, decapitate the Justice Department. Um, he was attempting to put in charge of the Justice Department Jeffrey Clark, who seemed uh, amenable to Trump's efforts to leverage the as a tool to keep him in power. And as part of doing that, he was 
pushing out of the way the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, and the acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue. The, the importance of this uh, episode in the, in the story of January 6th has kind of one more way station. And I thought that the committee did a really good job showing this, where essentially, you know, the Trump campaign is trying every tool that they have, uh, most of which are, you know, tools that will not work, as we saw, to overturn the election and keep Trump in power. At first, they are trying to stop the vote count, then they're litigating over various challenges. This is an instance in which they're trying to get the Justice Department involved. And then after that fails, they also try to get Vice President Mike to overturn the certification of the electoral vote on January 6th itself. So this is kind of one way station, one one last effort, um, again, at the, the end of December and the very beginning of January to pull the Justice Department in to that project. And what we heard really was that the Justice Department was not on board, uh, that Trump was essentially trying to, to get the department to investigate these claims of election fraud that had no merit again and again when uh, Rosen and Donahue didn't bite um, at Trump and Meadows's uh, repeated efforts, that's, uh, excuse me, uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to get them to look into these false claims. Um, they started pushing Jeffrey as the nectar of the department and essentially Clark sort of positioned himself uh, in, in an attempted mini coup within the department itself. Um, that he he essentially told Rosen that he was going to to take over. Um, and all this culminates in a very dramatic showdown in the Oval Office, I believe on, on January 3rd, where Justice Department officials essentially tell Trump, look, if you do this, we are all going to quit. Um, you will be left with no one running the Justice Department. And Trump essentially uh, agrees that he is not going to install Clark for that reason. So, Roger, you have studied this episode, unlike some of the others, involves relatively new, little new information because these three key witnesses had been deposed at length earlier by the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, and because the New York Times had reported on this episode quite extensively. Did we learn anything new about this today or is this just uh, basically a dramatic reading of prior art? I learned some stuff. I, I don't know if that's because I missed it uh, the first time. But there's a role of a guy named Ken Kukowski, which was quite interesting. And to understand uh, his role, uh, I, I don't. Uh, one of the reasons they wanted to install Trump to install Clark was that he had drafted this letter dated draft dated uh, December 28th that he wanted to send to the uh, high-level uh, state legislators, Republicans in Georgia. And um, basically, it said something to the effect that the DOJ's investigations have identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of uh, the election in multiple states, including the state of Georgia. And then it goes on to recommend that they convene a special se session, consider sending in legislative directors. And this was known as a proof of concept letter. They were going to send it elsewhere. This has been known. But apparently the guy that helped Clark draft it was this guy, Ken Kukowski. And he had been uh, a lawyer in the uh, Trump uh, administration until December 15th. So that's uh, 2020, so the day after uh, the votes are certified. And then he is moved to DOJ to act as an assistant to Clark. 
and he is closely coordinating with Professor John Eastman, who is, you know, a lawyer for the campaign that is plotting various things, including the uh, what we now call the fake elector scheme and and also ways to pressure Pence. So this very uh, unholy uh, planting of uh, a White House guy who's tight with a campaign guy in the DOJ and then trying to get uh, this uh, relatively uh, low level, well, somebody no one's certainly, no one's heard of in DOJ suddenly made into the AG so he can send this letter. It it all really uh, smells to high heaven. That was new to me. And of course, there was at the end, there was new, the new evidence about the people that allegedly asked for pardons, which did include Scott Perry. Uh, he had protested that uh, he never did. And then Mo Brooks and Matt Gates and Andy Biggs and Louis Gohmert. And uh, there was some hearsay evidence that maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene had. So uh, those things were new to me. Yeah. So let's talk about that aspect of it, because I think they, the committee very uh, self-consciously teased that at the beginning and saved it for the end. I can't decide, and I'm curious what you both think, whether that was principally for dramatic effect or whether... I mean, the seeking of pardons by members of Congress is not obviously connected to the larger theme of of the day's presentation. And so I'm curious, do you think, Roger, that this was kind of a gotcha to Matt Gates and Scott Perry and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and company? Or was there some thematic point that they were trying to make by putting this on the back of a day of material about the Justice Department? Yeah, I uh, wondered about that myself. The the connection was pretty weak for all of them except for Scott Perry. Perry was the guy that introduced Trump to Clark. But beyond that, I, I agree with you. Uh, the connection to the rest of the hearing was uh, thin. Quinta, what do you think? What was the what was the point there that the committee was trying to make by glomming these two? Uh, this sort of gotcha to their colleagues, or we know what you we, we know what you were doing last summer or last winter to their colleagues along this mostly otherwise unconnected story. I agree with Roger that Perry is certainly the through link there. So so Perry's relevance is that he is the member of Congress who first uh, seems to be promoting Clark to Trump as the guy who's going to come in and uh, fix all the problems. Um, and so the fact that that Perry was reportedly asking for a pardon as well kind of links that together. Um, I do think there were, there was a little bit of, you know, holding the, the twist at the end, you know, who will it be at the end of the television episode who asked for the pardon? Um, and I did kind of appreciate that as a bit of showmanship on the on the part of the committee. I mean, perhaps it makes a little more sense if we just think of this as, you know, they're telling the story of January 6th. This is the part of the story where they kind of wrap up all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, because as, as Benny Thompson said at the end, the next hearing is going to be about how Trump summoned the mob itself. So this kind of makes sense as, you know, you want to tidy up here are the things that everyone was involved with at the Justice Department. Here are the things that were going on at Congress. Um, so that next, you know, episode hearing, whatever you want to call it, we can focus more on what was happening within the halls of the White House itself. Um, I think perhaps if we think of it that way, it kind of makes sense. It's kind of closing off this this part of the story, as it were. I also think that, you know, there's a connection if we think of it in terms of 
the, the way that the committee really valorized how these Justice Department officials were standing by their duty to the country and to something greater than themselves. Uh, there's an implicit contrast there with these members of Congress who, who are simply standing by Trump, frankly. Um, the, I mean, the other connection which, which occurs to me now is also that there, there were some instances during the hearing where the committee was kind of walking through day by day what information Trump was getting, what he was asking DOJ to do. One of those uh, days, he points directly to a, a meeting that Trump had in the White House with various members of Congress, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and I believe others who also asked for, or reportedly asked for pardons later on, where these members of Congress seemed to be pushing Trump to involve the Justice Department. Um, before that, these members of Congress were in public um, saying that the Justice Department should be involved. And then after this meeting, Trump himself tweeted that the Justice Department should be involved. So there, there may be a, a bit of sort of weaving in uh, the role of these members of Congress as people who were involved in uh, pressuring the Justice Department in a campaign that ultimately failed because uh, Trump ultimately de decided against appointing Dean Clark. Okay, we are joined by the New York Times' Katie Benner, who broke this uh, whole story sometime back Katie, you'll pardon me, but I honestly don't remember when you broke this because <laughs> uh, I'm all together. I want to start with a question I asked Roger at the beginning, which was, was this basically just a dramatic reading reenactment of your story? Or was there material there that, you know, you haven't seen before, either in your own writing or in the Senate Judiciary Committee's uh, reports and depositions on the subject? Sure. Well, I think that's a question we all had going into this hearing because so much is known about the pressure campaign on the Justice Department. I wrote my first story on January 23rd. It was just right after the inauguration and with a few follow-ups. And then the Senate Judiciary Committee last summer, I believe, um, or maybe <laughs> time is running together for me too, um, several months ago came out with a report with detailed depositions from uh, many of the people we heard from today, Jeffrey Rosen, Rich Donahue, and others. I think that today it was very dramatic. It was very searing testimony. But we did hear some new details that I thought were really interesting that open up important lines of questioning, especially around Scott Perry. You know, we knew that Scott Perry had introduced Jeff Clark to the president, but there were little bits of the timeline that got filled in today that I found personally quite fascinating. On December 21st, the GOP um, members of Congress, including Scott Perry, meet with Trump to talk about election fraud and what they can do to undo this result. And then on December 22nd, the very next day, it's Perry who goes back to the White House with Jeff Clark. And um, we presume that that's when he made that introduction. And then you see the next 10 days of constant haranguing by Perry to convince uh, Rich Donahue that Jeff Clark is somebody who should take on a bigger role at the Justice Department to convince Mark Meadows. And clearly he's already convinced President Trump. Also, what we don't know is that plan was taken so seriously and was was such a live possibility for Trump that on the very day that it's supposed to happen, committee showed a really startling set of messages, you know, amongst people at the White House where they be by 4 p.m. on January 3rd, they begin to refer to Jeff Clark as the acting attorney general. So inside of the White House, there's yeah. a done deal. Really that I thought was the most startling piece of new evidence. They knew, it, they felt it was a done deal at 4 p.m. on January 3rd. And they thought it was a done deal knowing that Jeff Clark was there specifically to use the power of the Justice Department to un the election. So when we talk about coming, coming really close to a constitutional crisis, I think it's actually closer than what we knew. Yeah, that's really interesting. So by coincidence or not, 
you have a story or you contributed to a story today that the Justice Department has executed a search warrant at the house of one Jeffrey Clark. This fact, I think, colored the way a lot of people watched this hearing today. What do we know, Katie, about the search warrant and the investigation that produced it? What what are they, do we know even what they're looking at Clark for? So I'm not going to say that we know why the search warrant was executed. They had probable cause that he that there was um, evidence that could be found at his residence that would help the Justice Department investigate a crime. I mean, that's all we know. That's what that kind of warrant indicates. What we know about Clark in general, if you take a step back, is that plan to send a letter to state officials in Georgia, falsely saying that the Justice Department had evidence that was concerning and it felt that the state would need to basically take another look at its electors. We know that that was not only untrue, we know that Jeff Clark knew that that was untrue. Jeffrey Rosen, Rich Donahue, told him it was untrue. He secretly arranged a briefing with a member, you know, with with, uh, another official, intelligence official, who also told him it was untrue. And then we saw in testimony today, Eric Hirschman, a lawyer associated with Donald Trump, told him, you know, congratulations, if you do this incredibly insane thing, your first act as attorney general will be committing a fee. So it's difficult, I think, for Jeff Clark to argue that he didn't know what was happening or that he didn't know that the plan that he wanted to enact would be unconstitutional and unlawful. And so when you look at that on its face, that does seem like a very, it gives the Justice Department a very big opening to take a closer look at him. You know, he wasn't asking other people whether or not they could or should enact a plan. He himself was enacting a plan. So they're going to be really curious about that. And I think that it's if you're looking at something like election fraud, that that letter feels very important. Yeah. And I will just say this has a very interesting relationship with uh, some of the legal theories that the committee has floated, including the sort of fraud on the United States or a conspiracy to defraud the United States theory, because this is actually what you're describing is a conspiracy to commit fraud on behalf of the United States, right? To send as attorney general a fraudulent letter to the state of Georgia under color of U.S. law. I haven't sort of studied the question of which statutes that most closely fits under, but it's, a, it's almost the flip side of the fraudulent electors uh, theory. Roger, when you read the uh, Jeffrey Clark a search warrant story today. Uh, you've been thinking a lot about the criminal cases in general and how they do or don't fit together. What's your read on what this says, along with some of the other fake electors subpoenas that the department has been sending out the last day or so about where the department is? Yeah, like uh, Katie, um, I was focused on the letter, the draft letter to Georgia. Uh, And of course, like I said, it was a proof of concept. Uh, The plan would have been to then send very similar to all of the swing states. And so I don't know the, you know, the the particular Georgia uh, fraud, election fraud laws, but uh, it does sound like this would fit into uh, the broad fraud on the United States under uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 371. And not not just fraud by the U.S., but uh, upon it, because the plan was really to pervert, to trick 
multiple states and change the outcome of the of the national of the national election. So that's a possibility. I note that the, that seems to put Clark in a lot of jeopardy. I'd add though that I don't see exactly what it does with respect to Trump. It seems like there's a good argument here that Trump abandoned that plan. You know, uh, he never appointed Clark, and the letter never went out. And he could have appointed Clark, and there were negative consequences. I don't think is the sort of thing that defeats a claim that he he abandoned it. So I I, I don't know if it it helps you with respect to Trump. That that's my only question there. I'd also just note that. You know, your subpoenas went out today, criminal submit, grand jury submit, uh, alternate elector, you know, sort of thing. But in Nevada, uh, there were also a couple of search warrants executed. So uh, also in the same scheme, federal. That, of course, again, suggests they're further along than uh, I realized. Yeah, I will just say I, I share Katie's sense about trying to put together what any of this means. And I caution listeners against uh, their own efforts to do that and against people on cable television and in the blogosphere who are wildly confident that they know what's going on. I will just say, anytime you have multiple search warrants, a search warrant is a different situation from a uh, subpoena because it doesn't merely require relevance. It requires probable cause of criminal activity. Anytime you have multiple search warrants being executed in quick succession uh, to one another, you do have a presumption that an investigation is reaching critical mass of some sort. So Katie, I want to talk to you about the other protagonists in this story or the the antagonists, uh, the president's antagonists, the, I, I would say the Justice Department's protagonists, are three witnesses today, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, Richard Donahue and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Engel. None of them is a household name. No. They are all sort of, Stephen Engel in particular, kind of an elite conservative lawyer, mostly known for having, in, in the news, for having issued a series of opinions on executive power matters quite friendly to Bill Barr's position, Donald mm-hmm. Trump's positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet in this context, these three men appear to have acted with uh, impeccable institutional integrity and credibility. How do you understand, uh, and I have to say, I have very seldom heard heard congressional testimony more impressive than Richard Donahue's today. I'm interested in your assessment of who they are as, as actors in this whole story. So I think that Steve Engel, we'll start with him because he is in some ways the most interesting. You kind of see, you saw in the Senate Judiciary testimony that Donahue gave, you got a flavor of that today. You got some of that from um, some the pre-recorded testimony. Trump really respects Steve Engel. You're, to your point, nobody really ever knows who the head of OLC is. That's Steve. He was nominated to be the head of OLC by Trump very early in Trump's tenure. I think it was in January of 2017. He says, I want Steve Engel to run um, the Office of Legal Counsel. That nomination is opposed by John McCain because when Engel was a lawyer in OLC during the George W. Bush administration, he worked on the torture memos. And so McCain opposes him, but he still gets confirmed. So now Steve Engel's at OLC, and he does issue a series of decisions, whether it's around Trump's taxes, whether or not he has to turn those over to congressional investigators, whether it's Don McGahn needs to comply with a congressional subpoena, whether it's Trump needed to get permission from Congress before he struck Syria. 
These are things that Engel comes down on consistently in favor of Donald Trump. Even around Trump's Ukraine scandal, Steve Engel's LLC issues opinions that help Donald Trump. So when Donald Trump turns to him on January 3rd in that Oval Office meeting, he's flabbergasted. He basically says, Steve, even you would quit? And I think that when Engel says, yes, even I would quit because you would leave me no choice, that is something that's really important to Trump. It's more important to Trump that Steve Engel would quit than a bunch of other people he just never, he's never heard of. You know, it's like Don, <laughs> Donnie Hughes told him these other guys would quit, but, you know, Don, Donald Trump doesn't know who, you know, he doesn't know who, who Eric Dryben, the head of the Civil Rights Division is. He doesn't care if that guy quits. He cares a lot that Steve Engel would leave. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers, with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And so do we know what like Donald Trump's admiration for and propensity to suck up to elite conservative lawyers is not one of his known qualities as a human being. Uh, do we know where his admiration for and solicitude towards Steve Engel comes from? You know, I can't say with great certitude how or why again, but you know, Steve is a, is a person who has the respect of Pat Cipollone. He has the respect of Bill Barr. Uh, for a while, Trump did care about p- having people who were le- sort of you know, from the Bush administration because they gave an air of legitimacy to his to his administration. And Engel checks all those boxes. Plus, he's ever spoken with Steve. Whether or not you agree with his political points of view, whether or not you agree with some of the updates he's issued, I will tell you, I think that Steve Engel is an extraordinarily intelligent, well-spoken, and impressive person. And that's also something that mattered to Trump. He really cared a lot about whether or not people sort of seemed like they could play the role they were playing on TV. (laughs) And Steve is somebody who, as we saw from the testimony today, is kind of exactly the textbook kind of guy in his presentation who you would want running something like OLC. So what about the other two? Um, You know, they have a less you know, kind of movement background than Engel does. On the other hand, Rosen is handpicked by Bill Barr, who writes about him in his memoir that he was the guy he wanted to be deputy. (laughs) Well, Uh, he wanted him because he knew he could run over him. So I don't know if... (laughs) <laughs> Bill Barr wanting you to be his subordinate is really great. I mean, I think that Barr was quite a micromanager of the department. Normally, things like prosecutions, when there are questions that go up to the DAG under Bill Barr's uh, DOJ, they went up to Bill Barr. So I, think, so I don't know if it's actually flattering that he really handpicked um, Rosen. But what we do know is that at the end of the day, Rosen, for as much as he was cut out of decision making in the department, as much as he was sort of obviated by Barr, what's so fascinating is that Rosen, who is a man who cares most about, you know, 
administrative overreach, classic Republican concern, right? Like the federal government has its hand in too much stuff. It's using administrative power too broadly. This is not like a, you know, a crazy concern. It's very much in keeping with his party. He gets stuck in this position because Barr, who was supposed to be this chest beating, nobody Fs with me guy. We see it in his deposition. Oh, I thought this was bullshit. This is bullshit. I'm always standing up to Trump. Well, at the end of the day, he doesn't stand up to Trump. At the end of the day, he quits. And he has not filled Jeff Rosen in on how much is going on <laughs> behind the scenes. All he does is he goes out and publicly says there was no fraud and there's no need for special counsel. Basically, in his mind, setting Rosen up to be able to then, you know, sort of get through the next... 30 days or so, you know, he, he, he says he's leaving on the uh, middle, in the middle of December. Now, what actually happens is that it leaves Rosen to confront this incredible crisis, not just this batting down of voter fraud claims, which Barr had been doing. And I think that's sort of probably what Barr will continue for the next few weeks. But what we found out in the testimony today is that Trump had real inroads in the Justice Department that nobody knew about, not even Bill Barr. Not just through Jeff Clark, but also after the election through this man named Ken Klukowski, who was an ally of John Eastman's, who somehow managed to get installed into the Justice Department after working on other election fraud schemes with Eastman. He then moves into DOJ. So now you have Trump and the White House. You see they have two points of contact inside the department to undermine officials that nobody knows about. So Barr might have thought he was just sticking Rosen with a lot of really inconvenient meetings for the last few weeks. But in fact, what he did is he forced a man who did not want to be at the center of history to step up and say, okay, well, even though I, you know, support the Republican Party and I want Republicans to win for, you know, these reasons, including around, you know, administrative overreach, obviously wielding the Justice Department, weaponizing it and using it to make false claims is patently unconstitutional. And what about Donahue? He he's the frankly the most electric of the three as a person, <laughs> as an interviewee. He's he's charismatic. He's extremely well spoken. And you know, before your whole uh, campaign of reporting on this, I had very little sense of him. I knew there was a paid ag named Richard Donahue, and that he was acting deputy. And that's kind of all I knew. Who is he, and and where did he come from? So Rich is. It's just, as you can see from testimony, he's going to tell you what he thinks. He's really known for speaking his mind. He had been the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, and he is somebody who Bill Barr really liked. And you can kind of get a sense for why. They're not really similar. I think that Donahue has much more respect for hierarchy than Barr does, for example. But they both speak their mind. They speak it very plainly. And, you know, Barr thought that Donahue was incredibly smart and very capable. So he likes Rich. And as Officials are sort of moving around at the Justice Department near the tail end of the administration. Rich does get elevated to be the paid ag. I believe the person who was in the acting role, uh, I believe that he left to be a judge, but don't quote me on that. Um, so there was a lot of musical chairs, and Rich eventually ends up working with Rosen. And he, he's really well-respected by U.S. attorneys. They feel like, you know, Rosen was never a prosecutor. So while he's a pretty smart guy, you know, most of the a, most of the U.S. attorneys would really rather deal with Rich because Rich has spent a lot of time as a prosecutor, a lot of time, you know, putting bad guys behind bars, as they say, and they just respect his decision making on key issues more. I will put it that way. So it's probably no surprise when push comes to shove, we see Donahue again and again and again 
you know, telling Clark, you know, you see, you see Jeff Rosen say things like, oh, I was disappointed again in Jeffrey. <laughs> you know, I was disappointed again. Whereas Rich's testimony is more like, well, that was um, incredibly foolish, unlawful, and it's not going to happen. And I told him, you know, <laughs> he was nuts if he thought it was. He's just a little more direct. And I think that's who he is as a person. He's just a very forceful guy. And like I said, the people in the department who worked with him, most of them think very highly of him. But they would also tell you he's not the person that they would want to cross because he has a very little time for people who he thinks are idiots. Well, that certainly came through today. All right, we're going to go to audience questions. While people are requesting to speak, uh, Quinta and Roger, do you have thoughts on the three witnesses today and their presentations? Uh, well, it, it was just uh, riveting for me. I mean, I, I had uh, followed it uh, both from uh, Katie's reporting and uh, from some of the uh, transcripts that were released and so I wasn't surprised. Uh, they're they're all terribly impressive, and I yeah I admit that I wasn't until this moment in their careers I wasn't very uh, they weren't I wasn't a fan, and uh, I I thought uh, Engel correct me if I'm wrong Katie but yeah you mentioned Ukraine I I think he was the one who came who uh, announced this theory that uh, the telephone call could not be um, uh, soliciting a. Uh, foreign campaign contribution because you couldn't quantify the amount of it. And I thought, really, that's, uh, you know, that's not the way we, that's not true of soliciting bribes and, uh, in, you know, this country, plenty of law. So I was not well disposed and they were each more impressive than the next. And of course, you know, they were, they're all incredible heroes. Uh, they saved uh, the Republic. Quinta, your thoughts? I agreed completely. I think that, uh, Ben, you know, I've had my criticisms of Engel's time in, in OLC, but I really do think that they they all came off extremely well. Um, I mean, a, a lot of what learned here or what we saw here, um, as we've discussed, was previously read by, by Katie and by the Senate Judiciary Committee in a report that came out in October 2021. But really just having the witnesses in front of the committee telling the story, being, you know, direct and honest in the way that, that he does so well, I think really made it uh, incredibly gripping to Jim. You know, the, the committee has done a great job of this and the witnesses really helped them along with that here. I will just second, Roger, before I turn it back to you, I will just second Katie's point uh, about Steve Engel. I don't know the other two. I know I have met Steve Engel a few times and I've always found him uh, extremely bright and interesting and thoughtful and uh, you know, he's taken a lot of positions that are, are quite adverse to things that I believe, but I think he's a very serious person. Yeah, um, well, I was just very impressed with the, the words he said to Trump that he changed his mind on, 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 the, on appointing Clark or elevating Clark, which was something to the that, you know, all anybody's going to see here is that you went through two attorney generals in two weeks until you found some obscure guy in the environmental unit who would say what you wanted and uh, that he would be leading a graveyard. And uh, I think he spoke in terms that finally resonated with Trump. You know, he's uh, an impossible guy to convince most of the time, but uh, Engel did it. And, and of course, in addition to what Katie said, I gathered that, that he, he had enormous respect for Engel. Okay, uh, Tony Kava, the floor is yours. 
Oh, hello. Um, just wanted to say I was I was uh, impressed by these folks too. But to explain to kind of lay people like myself who are going to question why it is we're only hearing from them now and why they didn't resign, you know, a year and a half ago. Why didn't they go before the press and kind of tell America what was going on in the moment? Uh, thank you. Yeah, so I will take a first crack at that, and then uh, I can. Uh, Katie may have thoughts on it as well. First of all, they we're not just hearing from them now. Katie's first story was in January 23rd, I think she said, and I don't want to say anything about her sourcing, but boy, she knew a lot about what was going on in those meetings. And then in response to that, the Senate Judiciary Committee deposed these people at length, released the transcripts of those positions, and produced a report. So I don't think you can accuse Donahue and and Rosen and Engel of what we have all been annoyed at people like Bolton for, you know, or or even Barr to some extent. Uh, I think they shared their story. They didn't do it by holding a press conference, but they haven't exactly been quiet about it. Uh, Katie, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I've, I've definitely spoken to people who were in the Justice Department during that era, and I think that it's safe to say that People like Rosen, Donahue, you know, probably Engel, like all of them have thought a lot about whether or not they should have been more vocal in their opposition to what Trump was trying to do to the department and whether or not that would have been helpful. I think that there is an active debate amongst some of these former officials who have more full knowledge of exactly how much the department was being pressured. Would it have been better to come out and quit en masse right then and there? and give Trump the room to install loyalists? Would it have been better to say, I refuse to quit because I don't want anything bad to happen, but please know this is what's happening to me? Almost like a, a you know, abused spouse was coming out and, and saying that they're, they're being harangued and abused. Or was it better, I think, and this is where many people came down, the hope was it would just be better to continue to bat down the election fraud claims and just keep parrying back and forth with the White House until January 20th. I, I think if anybody had thought that January 6th was going to happen, I'm 100% certain they would have made different choices. I think that if they thought January 3rd was going to happen, there's a pretty good chance they might have made different choices. You know, if they thought that, that Trump had basically infiltrated the building in a way they weren't aware of. But yeah, I think it's I think it's a pretty active debate. And as it should be, I, I think that people are going to be thinking about this for a long time, especially going forward, because there could be another administration where we have a president who believes, maybe not exactly like Trump did, but in some ways believes that the Justice Department should be more of an arm of the president and the president should be able to wield the department. I will just say that Katie's story came out before the second impeachment trial, and there was all the predicate in the world in that story for the Senate trial to call these people as witnesses. And unlike the January 6th committee, the Senate didn't. And so I do think they, accepting the point that there's a matter that how much more they should have said and done is a matter of activity. I do think the onus of this problem falls on the political branches for not asking the questions. Daniel Lake, the floor is yours. If Trump is indicted, how much uh, would that hurt his campaign just logistically? How many times would he have to be in court? What ways would it actually harm his ability to run? So uh, yeah. this 
a little bit outside of the scope of what we do at Lawfare, but if any of the uh, uh, panelists have thoughts on the logistics of running for president while under indictment, uh, feel free to share them. I mean, I will say that Eugene Debs very famously ran for president while in jail, although I, I that, that we- And got a furlough from prison in Georgia to take the train up to Washington to meet with uh, uh, Warren Harding, uh, went back to prison and then Harding pardoned him. So perhaps there is a president, although I, I highly doubt that we'd end up in that situation here. The, the sad and, and strange thing, too, is that I think that if Trump were indicted, it was like supercharges campaign. He, he's, he's uniquely good at using the idea of, of um, being under attack or being the victim of a, or being a victim in general to his advantage. And I, I'm trying to think of something that would more energize his base than the, you know, corrupt Justice Department and the evil FBI indicting an innocent victim, Donald Trump. Yeah, I think it would be so good for his campaign. Wild Wallaby, you get the penultimate question today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Do you think the presence of Pat Cipollone being there and answering questions would have helped or hindered this round of questioning by the committee? Thank you very much. Super interesting question. So Pat Cipollone, from all accounts here, appears to have played an honorable role in this episode. On the other hand, he hasn't been very cooperative with the committee. Uh, I'm not sure who to direct this to, but what would what would it have meant if he had been sitting there along with the other witnesses telling this story? Well, I think this particular panel, you, you didn't need him because you you the, the voices we had were so compelling. Obviously, the the committee feels that he would be an invaluable witness on some other matters. And I, I actually hadn't realized that he had provided that informal uh, assistance already. But, you know, here, I, I think these guys were sufficient. These guys, that's all you could ask for. Bran, you get the last question today. Hi, thank you so much. I have a question about the people who were in political positions who supported Clark and Rosen who are now embedded within the DOJ. My question is, is there anything we can do about them? Should we look at them or are they not tainted by all of this? Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, so Katie, let, I'll, I'll, let's direct that mm. one to you. What do we know about whether, you know, every administration comes in with the belief that the the prior administration embedded people in career positions who are actually not real career officials, but political officials. Uh, do we know anything about whether that actually happened in a meaningful way during the late Trump administration? I mean, this is something that I feel like the great conspiracy theories, um, but I don't think we see a lot of evidence for it, frankly. All of the Trump, um, all of the Senate confirmed Trump tees are gone. All of the U.S. attorneys are gone with the exception of a handful. One is the U.S. attorney in Chicago, Lausch, who I will say has a very good reputation because he's overseeing all of these political corruption cases. And it would have looked really horrible, gotten rid of him installed and installed a Democrat to go after a bunch of Republicans. So he's a Republican going after some Republicans. So he's still there. And of course, David Weiss in or David Weiss in Delaware, who is overseeing a Hunter Biden uh, case. But other than that, those people are all gone. The one place we actually do see some people who I wouldn't call um, Jeffrey Clark supporters. I don't think there were any Jeffrey Clark supporters inside of the Justice Department, first of all. <laughs> That's not a thing. But who were 
who certainly were um, more in keeping with the past administration. You're seeing it in a lot of U.S. attorneys' offices because, now this is a real question for the White House, the White House is not nominating U.S. attorneys. They're really focused on judges. They're not nominating U.S. attorneys. You have acting U.S. attorneys all over. The Many of those acting U.S. attorneys were first assistants who were put in place under Jeff Sessions or under Bill Barr, who have a much more Republican point of view on how the U.S. attorney's offices should prioritize their time and resources. Tough on crime, street crime, gangs, very classic stuff. And the stuff they're not focused on and don't care about, white collar crime, any of the Biden administration priorities, those folks, you know, those priorities are not happening. You need a U.S. attorney to go in and tell prosecutors that you only have so much time and energy, please focus on this type of case. Otherwise, there's going to be glide path and it's going to be very much around Trump era law enforcement priorities. It's not going to be around civil rights. It's not going to be around voting rights per se. It's not going to be around white collar crime. So if you want to do something about those people who are still in de facto leadership positions, you should look to the White House to find out why they're not nominating U.S. attorneys. For a while, they hid behind Tom Cotton because Tom Cotton was putting holds on them. Cotton's no longer putting holds on U.S. attorneys. My sense is that his office has figured out that it's better to just win in the midterms and brutalize the Justice Department. Uh, they don't want to be. They don't want DOJ to be able to say to Tom Cotton, "Well, the reason why we can't get anything done is because you won't let us have our U.S. attorneys." So they would rather back off of that. So now it really is just a question for the White House, and I don't know why that hasn't happened. From Cotton's point of view, the more time you spend in the Judiciary Committee on U.S. attorneys, confirming U.S. attorneys, the less opportunity, the less time there is in the Judiciary Committee and on the Senate floor to deal with judges. And so one is a very powerful way of controlling the weight of the other. Mm -hmm. We are going to call it a day. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to our panel, Quinta Jurassic, Roger Parloff, and Katie Benner. And we will be back after the next hearing, whenever that turns out to be. We will, as always, post uh, the time of the Twitter uh, spaces shortly after we expect the hearing itself to end. And we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks, all. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Twitter itself which recorded this for us on Twitter Spaces. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast, so share us on all the socials. We continue to underperform on Pinterest, and you should do something about that. The Lawfare podcast is edited by the great Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.